Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody, and welcome to New Books in Folklore, which is one of the many podcast channels you can find on the New Books Network. I'm Rachel Hopkin. I'm one of the hosts of the New Books in Folklore podcast. And today I have two guests who jointly edited a book which is called Black Lives Matter and Music, Protest, Intervention, Reflection. In order of their names on the book's cover, they are Fernando Orejuela, who is a senior lecturer of folklore and ethnomusicology at Indiana University, and Stephanie Shonekan who is Professor and Chair of the W.E.B. Du Bois Department of Afro-American Studies at the University of Massachusetts in Amherst. Stephanie Shonekan and Fernando Orejuela, welcome to New Books in Folklore. Thank you for having Thank us. Thank you, Rachel. We usually start by asking our guests to tell us a little bit about how they came to be a folklorist. If you're willing to share that briefly, I'd love to hear those stories. Brief stuff. <laughs> Do you want to go first or shall I? Go ahead, Fernando. Um, I came as a folklorist. It's true. I probably am a folk. This is probably for everybody who came in through the uh, Department of Folklore and Ethnomusicology before 2000. We all came here and got our degrees in folklore and concentrations in ethnomusicology. So um, in the book, for example, I mentioned the fact that some of us do identify as both folklorists and ethnomusicologists, and some of us identify just as ethnomusicologists. Um, so I came here actually to Indiana University to get a two-year degree, master's in work in children's museums. That was my goal. Um, but I met come some important people who changed uh, the career path, including Dr. Ronald Smith, Portia Maltzby, Richard Bauman, and ended up staying a little bit longer than I had intended and going into a career path that I was not really intending. So that, that's brief and simple. That's how I got to where I am. And that's how I wear both hats in folklore and ethnomusicology. I'm just curious, what inspired you to take folklore and ethnomusicology in the first place? Um, as an undergraduate, I was an English major and a classics major. So I was very, very Eurocentric in what I thought was uh, the intellectual possibilities. And I met uh, Edgar Slatkin, uh, who was a Celticist. Um, but taught a folklore class, and for the first time, I, you know, was introduced to literature that was oral, that was about other people, um, and you know, for the first time, I realized that I could study, you know, works made by people who look like me, who come from similar backgrounds like me, and call it art and literature, and that's how I kind of saw that folklore as an opportunity to to explore and treat seriously um, the ideas, aesthetics, worldviews of people not included in that uh, Western European canon. Which is something that this is this book is very pertinent to. And Stephanie, over to you. What's your mm-hmm. story? Yeah, so um, my I guess my story is similar to Fernando's. Um, I um, got a, my undergraduate degree is in English and my master's is in literature. Um, both were um, I, I studied for both at the univer- at universities in Nigeria, which is where I grew up, 
And um, I was during my master's, I was intrigued by a class I took called um, Oral Traditions in African Literature. And, um, you know, as a former British colony, we our educational system was sort of basically um, based on on Western Europe. Um, you know, so Shakespeare and John, John Donne and, um, you know, all William Wordsworth, all of that is what I did in my undergrad. Um, but because my parents, my, my father is Nigerian, my mother is Trinidadian. So um, I was always intrigued by the traditions of both, both places. Um, but none of those were really represented in my educational background up to the point Mainly up to the point of, of my master's, I did I did a little bit of um, of Caribbean literature in my undergrad, but um, it was during my master's year with a professor called um, Isidore Opehu who um, who taught the oral traditions class, and so I became intrigued. At the same time, I was very interested in the um, the bridges between um, music and poetry. Um, which is what I did my thesis on during my master's at the University of Ibadan. And then um, when my professor um, moved to the United States, he went to a folklore conference and met Ruth Stone and um, and discovered this, this field called ethnomusicology. Um, and so he immediately wrote me um, in Ibadan and said, I know you're interested in a PhD. Um, this is this this field is something I think you'd be really interested in. Um, so I did research on it because um, I had never heard of ethnomusicology, um, and um, and that's and that's exactly what happened. I he sent me brochures. Um, I applied for the program and um, had to dif- defer a couple a couple years, but I finally ended up um, attending the um, Indiana University, the same program that Fernando was in. Um, and also was um, was was completely taken by um, Ron Smith, um, Portia Maltzby, Melanie Burnham, um, and some of the other professors there. So so that's how I got into it. I I I completely um, fell in love with the field. It's exactly what I what I needed. So did you both meet at IU? I guess you must have done. Yeah. Yes. Um. It's a, yeah, it's interesting. I think probably the connecting factor uh, was Ron Smith first and foremost. And then when Ron passed, um, Portia kind of kept us two together. And our friendship kind of grew from, from knowing these two scholars. And so tell me how this book came about, Black Lives Matter and Music, Protest, Intervention, Reflection. So... Um... So after we both graduated from the program, we stayed in touch, and um, every year we would meet at one of the conferences, either the Society for Ethnomusicology Conference, which we shall continue to call SEM, or the Folklore Conference, the um, American Folklore Society, which we we, we call AFS. Um, and so, we, and every once in a while, I drag you to the popular music. Yes, once in a while, he'll send me the send me an abstract and 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 say I'm putting you on it. Um, and so we we um, we meet every year. We we talk about what's going on in the world, what's going on in our classrooms, um, and we decided um, in 2015. 
2015 or 2016? Um, 2015. 15, yes. Um, this is, so this is right after um, Mike Brown was killed in Ferguson. Um, this is a year after Trayvon Martin was killed. Um, you know, just so many cases that were, that were coming up and there were always music. Um, there was always some kind of music discourse that was going on at the same time. Um, and so Fernando and I decided we would pull together a roundtable to discuss this at the SEM conference in 2015. Um, you know, not knowing, not knowing what, you know, if anybody would have, would even come to, to the session, you know, these, these, these conferences, sometimes you might have one person in the room and that might be you. And sometimes it, it will be, it'll be, it'll be packed. And so we, we had no idea. We just want, we just knew that we wanted to pull together some colleagues to help us think about, you know, how we, how we deal with this in, in the classroom, in our research, in our lives. Um, and so we, we did, and the room was packed. It was that I think it was live streamed. Um, it was live streamed. It was yes. live streamed. And, um, we were, I think we were both, um, surprised pleasantly so that so many um of our colleagues um across the nation were interested in in um engaging in this in this topic it was an important topic because we knew our students were were also um pushing us nudging us to to bring this into the classroom so so we did that and um and then uh we decided after that to do the same thing at AFS with a similar um, response, and um, AFS was a year later, so we updated our discussion a bit, and then um, we were approached um, to put pull together a, a volume. Fernando, I'll let you continue. Yeah, do you want me to contextualize a little bit? Uh, yes, because well? the Black Lives Matter movement is actually pretty new. It was only came about in twenty uh, thirteen. Well, it, yeah, it's. It's, 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 yeah, let's talk about that a little bit because when we were talking about the uh, roundtable that Stephanie was talking about in SEM, Society for Ethnomusicology, um, Black Lives Matter had already existed as a hashtag. It was the brainchild of Alicia Garcia, Patrice Cullers, and Opal Tometi. In fact, it was Garcia was in particular as credit for inspiring the slogan in 2013 after uh, the acquittal of George Zimmerman for the murder of the 17-year-old Trayvon Martin, right? This unarmed black youth in Florida. Correct. An unarmed black youth. And he was uh, stopped by a neighborhood watch, self-imposed or self-declared neighborhood watchman who eventually confronted him and um, shot him dead. And he was not uh, found guilty. He was acquitted for those charges. And uh, it was uh, Garza who wrote in her Facebook page, you know, black people, I love you. I love us. Black lives matter. And that spawned our colors, I guess, took that, made a hashtag, and it just exploded on the internet. And so by the time that Mike Brown was, was another unarmed African-American male just out of high school, was shot and killed by police, that um, really set the movement and gave the movement wings. So when we were talking about this, um, black Lives Matter was something that people in black communities, people studying black music, black culture, were you know very firmly aware of. And the rest of America was just kind of getting a glimpse of it. 
So when Stephanie says that the anticipation of what that was going to look like at the Society for Ethnomusicology, we weren't sure. Um, and in fact, because it was a roundtable, we were going to talk a little bit more about the music. And I think that was everybody's approach. But when we got there, because so much had happened after um, the Mike Brown incident, the protests were, were growing. Um, Stephanie was experiencing it firsthand at Mizzou with uh, um, Jonathan Butler's hunger strike and the inaction of the president. So, yes, at, at SEM, it grew to a gigantic room. It was filled with all our colleagues. They live streamed it and because by the time that the proposal went into effect into the actual um, talks, students and faculty were aware of the, of the movement. It's no longer just a hashtag. And uh, the, all of us on that panel, um, we all came with the idea to talk about the music, but most of us talked about the experiences that we were um, confronted with. And so we got to locate it in Missouri. We got to locate it in Bloomington. We got to locate it in New York. Um, um, Aline Hayes brought it to the faculty level at, the, at, at her university. So um, it, it kind of, I guess the, the format of the, of the book was already inspired by that first open conversation, that roundtable discussion. And then as Stephanie said, at AFS, we decided to write papers more formally. And that's when we were approached by uh, Janice Frisch, who was the editor at that time um, of Indiana um, University Press, to, to put this into something that's accessible to everyone. So the book, is it uh, primarily designed to help people teaching about these subjects? You say somewhere in your introduction, Fernando, that the book is moving in a direction that highlights the experiential quest related to our ethnographic and autoethnographic projects with purposeful outcomes or exploratory possibilities for ethnomusicological and folkloristic activism in the teaching of and public practice with protest identities. That's a long uh, sentence, but... <laughs> <laughs> But I was curious about who you see as the audience for this book. Um, it's, I mean, obviously, I do think that folklorist and ethnomusicologists, and the, because we're interdisciplinary by nature, and we are not necessarily whole departments unto ourselves. Most of us are found in departments of English, departments of music, uh, departments of anthropology. Uh, so when I say folklore and anthropology, or folklore and ethnomusicology, it is with the intention to be interdisciplinary as much as to be multidisciplinary accessible. Um, I think the way that we wrote it, we try to keep it as simple, as clear as possible, with the exception of that sentence, I suppose. Um, <laughs> but uh, it's it, our goal was to use it as a tool for these classes that teach about culture, cultural expressions in particular, and the lived experience altogether. So I think you can manage it in a class on American studies, even, but it is targeting the way that we think about our disciplines, whether it through material culture in the case of Langston's essay, or music in the case of um, the, the, the other three in particular. So that was my objective. Can I also add um, that it was important for us to, um, to approach it this way, you know, very accessible, because we are aware that um, 
most of these fields in the academy um, really have no idea or have not, let me put it this way, they, they have not been, they have not been um, focused on issues of race. Um, they have, you know, every time I meet someone who says, oh, I did not know, you know, racism was still a thing, you know, or people who say we, we don't understand about Black Lives Matter, actually all lives matter, you know, that, that, that I think is, was the general um, response um, after the hashtag um, rose to prominence. Um, and, you know, even within folklore and ethnomusicology, in anthropology, in African studies, I mean, the fields that you would expect would be, you know, with it immediately. Those, a lot of the scholars in those, in those fields didn't, didn't understand what was going on. So we knew we were writing this not only for, um, you know, classrooms and so on, but for the general public as well. We, we thought, um, at least I thought that, um, this was an opportunity to, um, to give some, some context and, and some, um, some flesh around, around the tweets and, and the hashtags. Um, and so this was, this was part of the reason why we kept it, um, we, we kept this, this, this approach and really, um, the, the publisher, we, we did talk quite at, at length with the publisher and with our, with, with each other, um, to, to figure out, okay, should we, should we make it more theoretical? Should we, um, really blow, blow it up and, and make it more of a, a traditional, um, scholarly text? Um, and we decided to, to keep it as it was. Um, the response we got at the round table was a response to, to heartfelt, um, real accessible conversations about what was going on. And so we wanted to, to, um, to, uh, honor that and, and, and keep the tone as it was. And I think for both folklore and ethnomusicology, that is our mission, right? The human experience yeah. where we could have just done a textual analysis of all the songs that were coming out at that time. Um, but that's not what we do, either as folklorists or ethnomusicologists. Right. I just want to refer to something that Portia Maltzby says in the foreword. She's talking about Black Lives Matter as opposed to All Lives Matter. And she writes, white lives have always mattered, as evidenced by their privileged status, especially with regard to the criminal justice system and the ostensible white collar crime category. And she goes on later to say, how can we claim all lives matter when the majority of those lives are excluded from the educational curriculum? So let's move on. Uh, Stephanie, yours is the first case study in this volume. And it goes back to something that Fernando mentioned earlier, your experience at the University of Missouri in the wake of the shooting in Ferguson. Can you tell us what you're covering in this chapter? Yes, um, absolutely. So... Um at the time, well, in 2000, I moved to the University of Missouri in 2011, and then I became the chair of the Department of Black Studies in 2014 or so, or maybe two, it was 2015, I think, um, just before this all went down. Um, so, um, so I was, I was really, I, I had students in my classes, um, in my department who were really struggling with um with what was going on around them not only in um in the state of Missouri with 
St. Louis being down the road, which is where Mike Brown was killed, um, but also um, on campus. You know, um, these black students had cons- had been, you know, every every year, every semester, they get they get called the N word by by um, by white students. They um, they stand they feel isolated in classrooms where they're the only they're the only black student. Um, you know, the students on PWIs, which means predominantly white institutions, um, black students often um, bear a burden of of being the sole representative in a classroom or in a dorm, um, and this can be very burdensome. But add to that the trauma of of what's going on around them and the fact that the administration of the university is not um, is not does not seem to think that that those issues are urgent, um, and so there were you know up to from in two thousand fourteen in uh, early two thousand fifteen students were sort of protesting and and saying and you know quietly there were a couple of silent marches, um, and they were just saying you know um, as a university this is the flagship of the of the state um, can we please have some conversation, some discussion about what's going on around us. We are, we as black students are really, really struggling. Um, and there was a sense that um, they were not being um, heard. And so um, in 2000, it came to a head in, two, in this, in the fall of 2015, when the um, student body president, who at the time was a, a young black man, a brilliant black man, his name is Peyton Head, um, he was walking on campus and um, a, a few white students called him um, some terrible um, some some terrible some terrible words including the n-word um, and he decided to write a post on Facebook which went viral um, and it was just a post about you know what what it means to, to be a, to be a human being um, on a campus like this and so um again the university um the university uh ignored that and um and that was i think the the tipping point for the students so for me as an ethnomusicologist as a folklorist i um i just naturally followed what the students were doing um not only as a scholar but also as someone who you know as a black woman on on a college campus, I, I understood completely what, what, what they were going through. I had been them, you know, at, at one time at Indiana, I had been a black student at a PWI. So, and also our field, the field of black studies is, was created by students like this in the 1960s. So for me, it was just a natural, um, a natural turn to support these students and, um, help them to, um, to, to find some um, audience in the administration and among the, among the, the faculty. So um, I don't want to, to go on too long, but the but my chapter is about how the students used music in the movement. Um, all not only um, did they chant as they were marching, which which reminded me so much of what I'd read about from the 1960s, um, but also they in their quiet moments they also um you know always had their their headphones on and i was intrigued by this 
because they needed rest. Um, they needed to go back to, to the camps where they had set up um, camps on campus to just um, push the the administration a little bit to um, to hear them. And um, so I started asking them what they were listening to and why. And um, and then the last portion of the chapter is about you know, the music school, um, I had a joint appointment in the School of Music and Black Studies. And um, a colleague of mine in, mus- in the School of Music decided to um, engage as well. I was so impressed. You know, music schools are traditionally um, stuck in, in Western Europe, but he allowed one of his students, a black, a young Black man, to compose a, a piece which they, they performed. So um, I come at it from different angles, but all focused on the campus at the University of Missouri. Just before we move on, I wanted to ask about some of the things that the students talked about listening to on their headphones. Yeah, I mean, it was um, it was actually quite interesting to to see or to hear from them what they were listening to. Um, a lot of them were listening to sort of old what they would what they would consider old school um so stevie wonder was was prominent um the song um loves in need of love today was was a was one that a number of them just were listening were um were using to to pull themselves back to their center um a, a number of them listened to more contemporary pieces um, a lot of them listened to gospel, um, gospel music. This was music that they could just um, not only relax to, but also be inspired by. Um, Marvin Gaye was was featured. Um, you know, uh, Yolanda Adams. Um, a number of those are, um, are mentioned in in the piece. But what what struck me was the was the the, the scope of of their um, of their choices that that reached back to um, the civil rights era, soul music, R and B, um, and came all the way back up to to hip hop. There's a lovely quote from one of the students that you spoke to. Her name's Aisha Bashir, and she chose Kendrick Lamar's "All Right," uh, which is written about quite a bit in this book. It's a huge part of this movement. And she is describing how she didn't become familiar with this particular song until she became involved in the movement at Missouri. She says, in many situations, I am often referred to as the optimist. I look for the good and the bad, and I'm always reinforcing to others to worry less and to have faith in God, because after all, everything happens for a reason. All Right is a song that relates to this. It provides a sense of hope and reassurance for a promising future in the midst of the challenges, pain, and struggles that black people face day in and day out. And she continues there, but I, I won't read it all, but it's a really lovely quote. Yes, and, and, and so many of them chose All Right. Um, so All Right features in my chapter, and I think in Fernando's as well, um, as well as um, maybe um, in, I think Langston mentions that song as well. But um, this is a song that, the students also chanted as they were as they were marching. So this this features um, in several sections of my of of my chapter, and it's just you know it's a it's a song that um, is known now as the 
anthem of of this generation's movement you know it's it's interesting because the song includes the n-word but because you know they're marching with allies they are surrounded by allies who are not black and with the very complicated history of the n-word they they decided to um chant it without the n-word um i found that interesting as as well but 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 it really served served very well the the movement at at Mizzou as it did other other parts of the country. And in the wake of this, you actually designed a course all around the N word. Yes, I did. Um, I did. I I I uh, I created a course. It was to be a one credit tutorial course, um, and um, I proposed it, and it was turned down. Rachel, oh. um, you know, this is I think baby steps. You know, I think it was. It was considered a little bit going a little too far, but I do think the N word is at the is at the heart of so many of these of these uprisings. And I wanted to. Um, and after I heard a community member say um, in a in a response to an editorial in the in the local paper, the um, the the community member said, you know, why shouldn't why can't we as white people use the N word? since they use it in in their music and i just thought wow this would be such a i, I think i think we need a um, a moment to um to educate our our students on on the history of of this world of this word and its etymology um you know many of our students at mizzou were and are um you know from very rural um towns we've got a lot of students from urban areas but many Many are coming from from rural towns where where they have never seen a professor that looks like me, you know. Mm-hmm. And so, um, you know, I think I think the education would have done them done done them well. I will still I'm still going to to try and teach that course, um, but it just wasn't it wasn't the 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 time, and and I understood that. We move on to the next chapter, which is also very much based around teaching Black Folk Studies and Black Campus Life Matters. This is your chapter, Fernando. Can you tell us about this? Uh, sure. Like I said, the, um, I think Stephanie and I came in as perhaps the more seasoned of the contributors to this this work. And so that's kind of where we framed our experiences looking at what our students were going through, some things that, you know, we ourselves had gone through in different ways, um, going through the systems of university life in the United States in the 1990s. Um, This chapter was brought about in part because of my interactions with the students, um, interactions with my colleagues, and uh, just watching the ways in which we pretend we are making movements forward. On my campus, we are a very, very small um, number of minority students, but on advertisings and the ways in which we utilize our students for promotion is is incredible. And I had encountered some colleagues who were talking about, you know, teaching hip-hop courses that had nothing to do with race and everything to do with subculture. And so those things were problematic to me. For example, black students being featured on the advertising for the college, even though they're not representative. Right. So it makes the campus look like a really welcoming place for people of color, especially when they're front and center. And the thing is, is that like one of my own graduate students has been on probably about five different advertisements that I have seen <laughs> uh, for the um, the recreation center because she was very physically active. So she was, you know, 
There's a picture of her on the bicycle. There's a picture of her doing some aerobic activity. Um, and she had graduated many, many years ago. And, you know, so it still is used. Um, and I understand this university's purpose is to look, be more representative of, of everyone who's going to IU's campus. But the reality is, is that that's one way to, to, to recognize diversity. But the other one is to, you know, provide services, to provide spaces, safe spaces, where those students can um, succeed, excel, not want to leave. Um, so with my chapter, um, it was, I guess, an emotional attachment to what it is that I thought I was doing in a department of folklore and ethnomusicology, but also my other department in which I teach is African-American and African diaspora studies. And the Mizu situation that Stephanie described was also, um, adopted, um, that was the thing about the, the movement itself and when it shifted from just a hashtag, because I think I, right now, in the 2018s, 2019s, the hashtag has been used at least 30 million times, according to Pew. But the movement itself was something that affected um, people all over the country. And so the University of Missouri's experiences that Stephanie described, uh, my students and students at large at Indiana University um, supported Mizzou. And I think in the chapter, I mentioned the fact that they took a photograph of themselves outside the Black Culture Center um, and, and put, posted it on social media to, to demonstrate that support. And the Yik Yak application that started um, demonstrating that this, it, you know, racism lives here just as much as it lives in Missouri, probably in every university campus across this country. So that was this, perhaps the, the, the point of inspiration to kind of start dealing with this. And how do we, um, what, I've always thought that what we do in, in, in Black Studies is kind of offering that counter narrative, that experience that most of my white students who are taking this class, like I said, uh, this well, one course that I teach has 270 students and of it, the 270 students, uh, less than 20% are African-American. So this is speaks to me about the engagements in which we consume black art products, but never interact with black lives. And that was essentially what the primary goal was when I started that, that essay. And then the second was kind of like, well, how do we kind of unteach the things that we, that we think that we're doing that's, that's appropriate to, to issues of diversity, not just lip service. And that's where the assignment kind of came in. So you do talk about some of your teaching strategies that address these issues. Can you describe some of them for us? Um, it, it, the music lends itself to it. So when teaching a course on rap music, um, the, the notions of intersectionality, when I bring in a female artist to, to, to talk about or to, to um, address issues of not just gender issues, but gender issues that are race-based. Um, I can bring in Queen Latifah, I can bring in Eve, and we can talk about the stories that are perhaps less marketable, but still out there, responding to the material that's most popular. And why are those materials that are most popular uh, appealing? They, they cater to a market that wants that kind of uh, excess. Um, extreme behaviors of 
thug life or gangster life, that seems kind of attractive when you're not part of it. So part of it is through the lectures themselves, is introducing those counter narratives. And then in the writing assignments, finding ways that students can kind of relate with the history of hip hop's music making, addressing social issues. I mean, there's Black Lives Matter music before the Black Lives Matter movement. That's kind of what the point um, that I would like to bring to to the attention of my students. So we can go as far back as, uh, what, 1939 and, and uh, Billie Holiday and Strange Fruit. Look at Stevie Wonder living in the city in 74. But in hip hop, you know, NWA, Ice Cube, who got the camera, you know, bringing issues of black nationalism through popular music of the past. And what are the contemporary artists, how are they continuing that conversation as Black Lives Matter becomes something that is, um, reignites that conversation about black nationalism, about black power, about equality? Absolutely, absolutely. So this is an edited volume. It contains five essays, and the other three are by other people. So the next chapter is by Langston Colin Wilkins. It's called Slabs and the Social Importance of Contemporary African-American Folk Life. What's this about? I'll start off. Stefan, please feel free to interrupt. Langston's been working on a project uh, looking at um, hip-hop at a local level in Houston and the screwed music scene. And there was a connection with material culture. So just like the hip-hop of the South Bronx in the 1970s with a material or an artifact through graffiti writing, um, this group had their screwed music represented equally through the lowrider cars that they um, were particular to the Houston uh, African-American communities. And they referred to them as slabs lowriders, close to the ground, and candy-colored, extremely hyper-decorated. And it was part of the culture. And so one of the ways in which he thought that uh, this is the way that we can also start thinking and talking about Black Lives Matter. It's not just about you know the violences that are happening physically, but violences that are doing by excluding um, members of a community, such as the Houston's neighborhoods that he describes in his book, or his, his chapter. And so by providing a space for a celebration of family and slab culture, um, this was kind of a way of applying the ideas and spirit of Black Lives Matter uh, to move the community forward. Yes, and and we um, we thought this would be a wonderful addition to the to the book, not only because um, Langston was with us, he was at the first roundtable, right, Fernando? No, he's at the second. And yeah, he, was he wasn't the, at uh, the, the first meeting. one, but but he he really added um, a dimension to the conversation at AFS. Um, in the sense that, um, you know, we need to think about, we needed to think about interventions as not only coming from the classrooms or from student protests on campus or in communities, but also with the everyday um, traditional um, uh, experiences that Black people have been nurturing and participating in um, 
for a very long time. And so this chapter took us back to folklore, which is so, so much um, the sister field of ethnomusicology. Um, Langston is an ethnomusicologist as well. Um, and this chapter allows us to think about how, um, how folk life helps to preserve and uplift um, Black people, you, you know, throughout the decades and um, in, in different ways, in different com- communities. So, so this slap culture is, is definitely um, a Houston thing. Um, and, you know, we, we heard a lot of, I know, I know on social media, Langston got a lot of love from, from people from, from Houston who read that chapter and, and said, yeah, this is us. And this is how we choose to enter the Black Lives Matter movement is to, um, is to create and to participate in this tradition that we, um, that brings the community together, that, that shows our pride um and that um responds and, and challenges this the status quo. If you look at the photographs in particular, I mean the whole slab, the idea of it is a kind of a resistance to the status quo by the slab the the appearance of the slab by it being rolling in the neighborhood is a form of kind of neighborhood or political resistance. Um it is in fact affirming that Black Lives Matter in this community, that we need to value the diversity in Houston of all its communities. And that's what his festival was, was trying to do, addressing those paradigms that are constructed by um, uh, Garza and company. The next chapter is by Alison Martin, and it's Aff- Affirmation and Resilience in African-American Musical Spaces in Washington, D.C. What's this about? I'll let Fernando start on that one because I know he worked very closely with Allison on this. Well, yeah, Ali's been working in D.C. Her major focus has been with GoGo. And the space of, of, of GoGo and the chocolate, the idea of a chocolate city, D.C. has been gentrifying for years. And she's looking at sound uh, related to the Black Lives Matter movement, GoGo, surveillance and all as a result of personal experience because she was actually the youngest and still a graduate student um, feeling the the um, effects of what we were talking about in our first two chapters well, it's definitely my first two chapters and so her goal was to do a couple of things you know tackle these stories about go-go music and Move around, move away from a narrative um, around Goga that is not inclusive of the violence and criminality. Just before we go on, what is go-go music? Go-go is a derivative of R&B that came out of the um, Washington, D.C. area. It emerged around the same time as hip-hop. There are some similarities, um, but they are two different genres. It is a dance music. And um, Brown is one of the people that are probably most associated with that soundscape. Tell us a little bit more about this chapter. What's she covering in her work? So, like I said, she wanted to shift the narrative around of Gogo, um, not just about looking at the ways in which the neighborhoods are criminalized 
but also she had the intention of, you know, talking about those um, unfinished conversations that we have been starting in, in ethnomusicology and in, in the ways in which we can perhaps even politicize the scholarship about black urban life. And then if I may add, um, the, the thing I love about Ali's chapter is that she talks about um, black death and how, um, how traumatic and burdensome that is. I think she, she begins her chapter that way. Is that right, Fernando? I'm, I'm going to try and pull it up. But yeah, she, she does because she's talking about her personal experience, and she was uh, kind of tired of having to, you know, yes. witness to in social media the yes. accessibility of, yes. of Black Death that uh-huh. her generation experienced much more so than previous generations. Right, and 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 its excess. So, um, you know, in in Black stu- in the field of Black studies, there's a whole new um, there's a whole new subfield now that's called um, Afro pessimism. You know, and this is uh, it, this comes out of sociology and um, is all about what what does this mean when we are faced with black death um, so at, at in, 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 in such an excessive quantity and now with social media it's so um, it's so visible and the people who are most um, affected by it are people of are people of color so she starts her chapter that way, and she reminds us of why um, why this movement, Black Lives Matter, is, is is so important while while focusing and basing it in 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 DC. One of the things she says is is she describes how people can have these specific events in their lives shouted out during a go go show, so that they can be kind of celebrated and uplifted yeah. and say the announcement of a birthday becomes part of the performance. Exactly. exactly. Another way of showing solidarity and resistance. Yes, exactly. And, and she also touches on the fact that um, those go-go parties are, are surveilled as well. You know, that, there's, that, that there is surveillance of, um, of black people gathering. You know, that's something that most people of color can, 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 can relate to, you know, when, whether it's just one black person in a in a car, you know, that's stopped by the police, or um, or or a group of a, a group of them, I think we can relate to um, to what Ali is, is Ali is talking about in in this chapter quite well. The next chapter is Black Detroit: Sonic Distortion Fuels Social Distortion, and this is by Denise Dalfond. I hope I've said her name right. Yes. yes. Who wants to talk about this one? <laughs> Maybe we should, we should both talk about this one. Um, so this one, um, Denise was um, so as Fernando said. Yes, we we invited her to to um, contribute because we knew that her work on um, music in Detroit would be a great addition. Um, she wasn't at either of the conferences. At least she wasn't on the panels, but. We knew because we all come from the same program. Um, she graduated a little bit after me, um, and I graduated. I graduated. I was in. I was in a class um, after Fernando. But but we were all there. At we all overlap at 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 some point. And so Denise's chapter um, brings. I mean, she is focused on Detroit's black dance music, um, and I think it's a great way of showing. Um, 
like Ali, uh, like Ali does with Gogo, um, bringing in a, a, a genre of black music that is not is not, you know, regularly on the radio, um, and yet is so important to 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 black folks, um, particularly in this case, black folks in Detroit who created an electronic dance music that is specific to Detroit. And um, while there are other types of music around the country, like in Chicago and even in South Africa that um, are, are like this music, um, it's not quite this, the same. So Denise dives a little bit deep into um, Detroit dance music and, and builds a context around it. Um, and it's, um, and the ways in which this music has resisted, um, white supremacy in, in Detroit specifically. And Detroit, of course, is a very interesting, um, space, um, has, has had a very, um, very interesting, um, history. Um, and, you know, this is, we typically think of Detroit and Motown, well, well, Denise is going the other way and, and thinking about Detroit and, and, and this particular form of dance music. Um, yeah. And if I'll add, the, the interesting thing about De- Denise's chapter is the ways in which she's bringing another kind of narrative, the mythologies that they are themselves constructing that is particular to, um, not like a, I wouldn't say black Afrofuturism because the, and I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing this right. The Drexia community that they invented, you know, are the underwater sea-dwelling peoples of color. And so the Afrofuturism that we've experienced perhaps by folks like uh, uh, George Clinton, that period. Sun Ra. Right, Sun Ra. Um, and, you know, it's, it's important because it is still rooted in that black music history, but they have localized it to Detroit specific and they're water-based people and a water <laughs> uh, community and mythology that, that gave birth to them and gives birth to them as a, a spirited community. And that mythology is not something that everyone can, can, can attach themselves to, but it is a kind of form of resistance to in the same ways that Afrofuturism was in the 1970s to this 1990 post 1990 group constructing techno music that is a black popular uh, black dance music that we once thought was or many folks thought was a european import so we've covered the five case study chapters in this book is there anything that either of you would like to add well i, I think we would we would definitely want to say how um, how we we're so gratified that Portia Maltby added that forward at the beginning for us, um, because you know I think we were both because we were both trained by her. Actually, all five of us. So all is it five of us? Yeah, yeah all five yeah. of us were were trained by Except her. Except for Ali, right? But but Ali is 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 sort of trained by you, who was trained by by Portia. So um, so I think that we we find that that piece to be really a, a, a wonderful um, entry in, into this volume. And as far as adding, I mean, I also am surprised because we rushed through and made this book happen in about a year's mm-hmm. time um, mm-hmm. from beginning the writing process to, to the actual publication. That's amazing. So, 
It was, it was, uh, yeah, it was a lot of work. Um, I know that's amazing. not everybody's writing experiences. And uh, I mean, I'm still baffled by it. Um, there would have been lovely to include other chapters because we did have other presenters, mm-hmm. um, but not everyone could meet that time frame. Right. So it could have been slightly different. Mm-hmm. Um, but we also wanted every chapter to be able to stand on its own independently. Mm-hmm. Right. As opposed to something that is read exactly the same throughout. Before we finish, I want to ask if you have any key pieces of advice to people teaching in university situations who maybe haven't brought issues of critical race theory into their classes or mentioned Black Lives Matter or anything like that. Um, yeah, be brave. <laughs> uh, because you will find a lot of resistance. You uh, have a lot of students who are much more emboldened. Um, to not mm-hmm. want to listen, to not want to participate, to just want to consume and not want to have to think about what they're actually consuming, musically speaking. Mm-hmm. And, um, well, obviously, assign this book. <laughs> but other than that, um, I would say that the, uh, I would echo what Fernando said, which is, um, you know, it's, it's time to be brave. You know, it's, um, we are in 2019 and dealing with, um, some really egregious um, examples of, of racism and xenophobia, um, not only in the United States, but around the world, whether it's against immigrants or, or against people of color or against people who believe something different or look different or have a different language. Um, I think we are facing um, globally um, a movement that is... Um, that threatens to take us backwards. And what we are hoping is that um, we um, engage our students. You know, this generation is is ready. I think they are just waiting for us as faculty, as teachers, as as instructors to um, to help them get there. Um, and if we don't, then then they, then then we've we've missed an opportunity. So. Um, you know, I, I I hope that our colleagues on 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 college campuses, um, in their own way, whether they're teaching geography or um, or folklore or English or history um, or even in the sciences, you know, I I hope that they understand what their students are going through and um, find a way to bring that somehow into the curriculum. That's just, I, I would like to add, I, that's, that's exactly right. Um, not just be brave, but be brave and sensitive at the same time. In my experience, is because like I said, I don't teach, uh, uh, I, I don't have a lot of black students in my classroom. So uh, like in my current class on, on subcultures, I have 120 students and only a handful are African-American. And when we do our Black Lives Matter segment, I did say that this may be difficult for some of you to have to listen to because some of you will be affected by it differently because you do get confronted by the things that I'll be describing that the Mizu students are are talking about in this chapter. And those of you who, you know, it, there's, there's, they, they may be triggering mm-hmm. um, to have to confront that in front of a whole bunch of classmates that don't know that that exists at all. Yes, these are uh, salutary thoughts for our listeners. So Fernando Orejuela and Stephanie Shonakin, thank you so much for being on the New Books in Folklore podcast to talk about Black Lives Matter and Music. 
Protest Intervention Reflection. And I'll just remind our listeners that the New Books in Folklore podcast is one of many podcast channels that you can find on the New Books Network. Thank you, both of you. Thank Thank you, you, Rachel.